0: I guess Man. we should talk about these movies, though.
1: Yeah. Okay. These let's are. Do that.
0: Yeah. I mean, what to say about Rebecca? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, so I, for me, I my, my first experience with even hearing about the movie was actually hearing people. Mention it when talking about fandom thread. I actually didn't know this. <laughs> I had watched like other Hitchcock films, but this this one just kind of flew under the radar for me. Right, and, right, um, right. Yeah. So ever since I had seen fandom thread and heard people talk about it and reference it, you know, uh, well, when, when talking about that movie, um, it's been sort of something that I, I wanted to watch, but then I, you know, kind of, and, you know, I always put like a movie on my list that I want to watch and then it'll, I'll kind of forget about it for a little bit. And then the the new Rebecca on on Netflix came out recently. And that's kind of what reminded me of this whole thing. And I finally got around to watching both of the movies.
0: Yeah, I kind of, I saw that scrolling through Netflix and it was just kind of a moment of like sort of abject horror because <laughs> I saw the title card and I was like, no, they didn't. Right. No, they couldn't have, because I had gotten the Criterion edition as a birthday present from, I think, my mom and my sister one year. Oh, that's um, cool. And I think I had heard about it, just vaguely familiar with it through Hitchcock, but never seen it. And I watched it with my family, and we all loved it. We all thought it was amazing. Um yeah. And I mean, yeah, the original is just a a fantastic film. And when I saw the the Netflix version as a Netflix film. I had low expectations and
1: yeah, well, you know, I mean, there there are there are definitely some good like Netflix films, Netflix originals out there, mm-hmm. but I definitely do feel like it, this isn't just us, but there's kind of a general feeling of netflix films not being of the highest quality i guess yeah Um, there's
0: certainly not a um a standard that they always meet for sure because you have but you know good people like a queen's gambit is something we might talk about in a later episode i thought that was quite good and
1: also mank the fincher film is a netflix produced
0: film that'll be out
1: today actually
0: yeah i'm excited to check that out buster scruggs i loved that so there's good stuff netflix has put out but this new Rebecca was not one of them. With that, no, uh,
1: it, it's not the worst thing I've seen either, though. Oh god I, no! Yeah, I've I, definitely I, seen worse <laughs> things on Netflix where I like turned it on and I just like I I actually just had to turn it off in like ten minutes. But this, oh, this mm-hmm. new Rebecca was wasn't great. Yeah,
0: I ma- I made it through, but uh, not in one sitting. Uh, couldn't. Yeah, couldn't I couldn't watch it all
1: that. at once either. Which yeah. is,
0: and we'll get into why. This is Internet Film Café, a podcast about movies on the internet. I'm Kevin.
1: I am Kent.
0: And today we're talking about Rebecca, two versions of Rebecca. There have been a lot of film versions of Rebecca, but the two we're talking about today are the first and the latest, 1940, which is a Alfred Hitchcock and David O. Selznick production, very famous film, One Academy Best Picture. And the recent one, the 2020 edition, which is a Netflix film by Ben Wheatley is the director, I believe. who I have yep. not been familiar with, but you have.
1: Well, I saw his film High Rise, um, which came out in like 2012. Don't quote me on that, but early 2010s, teens, I guess.
0: And uh, thoughts on that? <laughs>
1: uh, not what, a good movie. I don't I don't so, think so. And I think, yeah, I I'd, I think there was there was a lot of hype around it because of um, well Tom Hiddleston was in it and I I like mm. Tom Hiddleston as an actor and, yeah um, he was hot around it, that it,
0: time too like he was pretty yeah it, popular and it
1: was like this really sort of high concept sort of film mm-hmm. although I, I think for me it was a little less exciting just because um, well the movie was about like. high-rise apartment building and the people who live on the you know like a metropolis sort of thing the people who live on the bottom floor it's like a society thing
0: yes yeah you live
1: on the bottom floor and you're poor and Mm -hmm. and you're you know all this sort of stuff and the middle floor is whatever and then there's like you know the lavish parties and crazy stuff. you know nothing nothing new (laughs) um yeah it's still like an interesting i still think you know the the Mm-hmm. it's how you tell that story right so it could still be interesting
0: yeah i mean i've i'm i'm always wary of that concept because i've seen it done poorly more than i've seen it done well but i mean snowpiercer yeah. i think is a great example yeah of that's done well
1: ex- exactly yeah what i was. I think that's say. a, it's a great that's example. a really
0: great film and you know it kind of works within that concept so yeah it isn't yeah. completely untenable concept but it's something that's very easy to roll your eyes at i think um I, yeah yeah <laughs> Much the same is any sort of retelling or adaption of a story or a film that Alfred Hitchcock has tackled, which is always a doozy. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend yep. it to any aspiring filmmakers listening to this podcast. <laughs> Maybe don't attempt to adapt Hitchcock films, retell them, or, as Rebecca is, was originally a novel. It's a 1938 uh, Gothic novel by the English author um, Daphne du Maurier. I think that's her name.
1: Yeah, I'm misremembering
0: remembering it. Um, and it was extremely popular at the time. And Hitchcock originally had wanted to develop it into a film, but he was outbid because he was just an English director at the time, hadn't gone to Hollywood yet. And he was outbid by uh, whatever studio David O. Selznick was. involved. Well, I think Selznick had his own production company. Um, I mean, David O. Selznick is, is a huge movie mogul of, you know, the sort of golden age of Hollywood.
1: Like um, Gone with the Wind.
0: Yeah. The, like the, that's the
1: movie that everyone knows that he did.
0: Yep. I which won, he won back-to-back Best Picture for both of these films. Hitchcock unfortunately did not win Best Director for this film and never did win Best Director. So thanks for that, Academy. Another great director in the bucket. Um, <laughs> they, they, they really like snubbing good. Like people complain about like actors, you know, like everybody complained about Leo for years. But I mean, just look at all the directors that were nominated multiple times for Best Director and never won. And it's really just yeah. a head scratcher. Um, also, uh,
1: you know, I mean, Deacons was a pretty big one too for a while. So yeah, why yeah, hasn't yeah. Deakins yeah. won he one, and then he got finally got won it. one for 2049. Yeah. But anyways, well, he had been nominated like 30 times or something insane.
0: Really, that, I didn't know was that. That's actually crazy. <laughs> yeah, but anyways, the the sort of story behind the original film is super fascinating because um, it was Selznick who was able to outbid. Hitchcock and other suitors for the rights to this film because it was such a popular novel, and Selznick was in love with it. And Hitchcock Mm kind of had the idea when the novel came out, and then he tabled it for a little bit. And um, when it was time for David O. Selznick to actually tackle the project, because Selznick was like enamored with this book, really wanted to adapt it for the screen, it was Hitchcock who got the gig directing, and it was his first appearance in Hollywood a huge step for the director because he wanted to work with more, you know, advanced equipment and more resources and bigger productions. As everybody knows, Hitchcock was like a technical genius. So the ability to work, you know, with better equipment that could let him do more advanced techniques was really the next step in his career that he needed to take. And I'm glad that he did. And I'm glad that him and David O. Selznick made this film because it really is a wonderful film. Um, yeah, and the the story of their kind of conflict in this film, I think, is something that's really worth looking into if you're interested in it. Um, but I think one of the biggest reasons to do this podcast is actually just to complain about Netflix because, like you mentioned to me yesterday, uh, you had a lot of trouble watching the original film. If you don't own it on DVD like I do, it might be difficult for you to find the original it's not, film. It's to not watch. streaming on the internet. Yeah.
1: You you can't it's it's literally just not streaming on the internet. There's nowhere to find the original. You have to which just is, buy a DVD copy.
0: Yeah, which is tragic because DVDs, I mean as much as I love DVDs, they're it's an outdated format like
1: Right. I yeah. mean,
0: plenty of people don't even own DVD players anymore, which is completely understandable. It's not like owning a CD player. It's not yeah. necessary. Um but instead, we have this new version directed by Ben Wheatley, which Um, I think is an unsatisfying replacement. (laughs) So let's kind of get into why that is. What do you think are like the sort of you know over arcing themes here? Because we have a super interesting story no matter what. I mean, I think this is something that, you know, I even enjoyed about the new film. It's just the story is just amazingly interesting. Yeah,
1: it's it's just a really amazing story, like really, really interesting story about I I, th- I think, uh, I mean, I definitely have a bias towards stories of I, I don't really like ghost stories, anything like that. But I like stories that feel like haunting or feel like there's something mm-hmm. like lingering in the back of your mind sort of. Yeah, thing. that's sort so of more gothic
0: bit... horror vibe. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And also, I mean, like in a way, like Lynch sort of stuff, too, like his films are haunting to me, like they kind of. they're Oh, totally. Not explicitly horror about them but it kind of it it sort of just lodges itself in your subconscious and you can't get rid of it you can't shake it and i think that was really interesting to me um, yeah story-wise so even even though the remake wasn't like i didn't like it i was still really enamored by the just the story itself
0: and the remake was your first experience with the story, correct?
1: Yeah, I, I watched the remake f- first, and then I watched the Hitchcock version.
0: Yeah, mostly out of accessibility, which is my biggest problem with this new film, is not even its existence, just its sort of existence in a uh, sort of replacement for the original film, which I, you know, love so much and think that nope. everybody should watch instead. <laughs>
1: I, I will I will yeah I definitely agree with that and I and I will say I I ended up watching the the movie on uh, YouTube that was like the one place that I could find it and it was like mm-hmm. a 360p and the the one the one sort of nice thing about it was the entire comment section was who's who's here because of the new Rebecca on on Netflix or who's oh that's good yeah. or like this one's much better than mm-hmm. the original so it's definitely at least.
0: You mean this one's much better than the new the story? one? I, you said this one's better than the original. <laughs> oh yeah, the, the new one. <laughs> my
1: bad. Yeah, yeah.
0: I'm sure yeah, there are people, a few people. <laughs> I mean, we could do some IMDb review ratings for this film if we wanted to. Oh Jesus! Down the line, yeah, that'd be a good uh, one.
1: Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of people who do like it because it's not. Again, I don't think it's a it's a terrible movie, but it's just as soon as you put it up against the original one it 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 doesn't do so well
0: yeah which is i mean and i did watch an interview by ben wheatley and he was familiar with both the novel and the original hitchcock version so it's not like he was directing this in the dark Um, yeah he he knew what he was going to be compared to and in some sense he knew what he was up against and i mean that's a daunting task for any director but i i there are still a lot of things that I wish he had done differently, even though I never expected him to live up to the the, the original version. The film still kind of undercut some of my expectations. Um, some things that I just think are really kind of obvious and bad decisions in filmmaking and storytelling. Um I, the first and foremost is the the casting and the performances i think are are not too yeah, strong in the new version
1: let's start there i guess
0: yeah army hammer what say well, about I just this think performance? he was
1: yeah i think everyone was just kind of miscast except for kristen scott thomas who was sort of a diamond the, in the rough i guess yeah
0: the the bright spot of this film for sure her performance is miss yeah. danvers is great yeah. um but yeah
1: army hammer's performance is weird um it's
0: it's very weird
1: <laughs> i don't understand it and i don't it doesn't have the same it doesn't have like the same mystery i mean it's strange and it's also like kind of one-dimensional it's just Anytime anytime um the new uh Miss Mrs. De Winter mentions Rebecca or anytime he's reminded of Rebecca, he just kinda gets like moody. And that's yeah, it. he just gets it just mad happens and, like five and,
0: or six times like and cold and distant, yeah. And yeah,
1: whereas well with with the Olivier performance, he's Like that's there too, but he's also, he's kind of charming and he's also, um, he's kind of like pushy too, in a way. Yeah, um, no, he is. I I mean,
0: I think, you know, obviously the old film fits more into the sort of traditional gender roles and the high class, you know, society that it's based in. For sure. Um... By the characters are also just better developed like laurence olivier is cold and distance distant towards the um the, I, well the nameless main character i guess we need something to call her um, yeah
1: what do we call her i just called her the new mrs de Winter, but okay she's she's mrs de and then when we're talking about rebecca it's just rebecca that
0: we could call her but, i because in the original treatment of the the 1940s script that's what they called her in this in the screenplay is just i kind of that's gonna get
1: confusing but that is i'm saying like i'm talking about i (laughs) i i i who's i i'm i
0: but also i'm just trying to make it more difficult for all of us that's (laughs) michael um wait but
1: why why was that like i as in like a like a first person perspective i or
0: I have no idea. I have no idea. I just have the oh, like, booklet from the DVD copy, and that's in there. And they mention it in the commentary oh, on the uh, Criterion DVD as well. Interesting. Um,
1: but what well, one of the things I, I wanted to point out about um, the uh, uh, Ma- maxim's character in the first one, and then, and and I think you've you've seen both of the films a few more times uh, than I have, and I know you're more familiar with the original for sure. But when I watched the the new one, one of the things that I got really confused by was his motivation to talk to Mrs. De Winter Um, early on, like early in the film when they're in the hotel in the French Riviera or whatever. Um, I feel like in the the original film, because they had set up that that first scene where they're together with him at the cliff, yeah. With him at the cliff and her going, no, stop, don't do it. It sort of sets up this, okay, they've at least seen each other before.
0: Yeah, it's like kind of a meet-cute. Like... <laughs> it's a very Hitchcock. Like? It's kind of a meet-cute.
1: I don't know what that is.
0: Oh, a meet-cute is a romantic comedy trope where the, the two characters that are going to fall in love meet in this kind of you know, coincidental sort of way. If you've oh. ever watched a romantic comedy, you know what I'm talking about. Where the what the about two... like
1: Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson on the elevator in Lost in Translation, like that?
0: Kind of. What it's usually a little kind bit of like more at each other. Yeah, it's usually a little bit more obvious, and they usually start strike a conversation in that scene. Oh, um, okay. But yeah, it's kind of like a demented meet cute for Hitchcock. Okay. You know that their okay. first meeting is so, yeah. one of them contemplating suicide which fits the tone of the film so well um, yeah and it
1: sort of you know it sets up it, it sets things up really fast for you but the thing that i was confused about is that 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 exists and then they meet each other later in the lobby right yes and then can you because van hopper do you calls you calls him exact- over. yeah because she knows maxim because of manderley and, and you know all that sort of stuff but do you remember what happens in the original one like why why they start talking like they start going on drives and getting notes like what 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 happens in the yeah. original one
0: yeah in the original or in the new yeah, one yeah
1: the hitchcock
0: oh uh like well she meets him at the cliff
1: well she meets him at the cliff but then they start like talking oh. and then start driving around and like doing stuff together what one exactly is that connection that part of the connection when is that made is it just in that lobby scene right when they're talking to each other
0: ah uh, i can't remember exactly how he okay asks it's her.
1: It, it's not terribly important no because <laughs> but but what i'm trying to figure out is that in the in the 1940 hitchcock version there's like a clear sort of motivation for them to talk to each other because they've met each other before coincidentally but it's established as the first thing when, when we see them in the French Riviera is they, yes they yep. have seen each other before and it's sort of established where they talk to each other whereas in in the the remake the 2021 um that scene doesn't exist and they the it's replaced with Mrs. De Winter trying to get like uh it's trying the, to reserve a table
0: yeah it's the really awkward scene with her spilling the money everywhere and he's like yeah, behind spilling her. the money and oops yeah. I'm
1: clumsy and that sort of stuff and that's yeah. their first meeting but it doesn't have the same punch right i think they're i think that's what they were trying to do is they're using that scene as sort of like a mm-hmm. this is how they meet this is their meet cute right is is that happening but yeah the first and- time i watched it i didn't notice that and i thought it was really weird that like afterwards Maxim just like invites her to her table to eat, you know,
0: I mean, one like, of the interesting things stuff. that we can really only speculate because neither of us have read the novel is, you know, um, one of the things about the original film adaptation, Rebecca was the huge point of conflict between David O. Selznick and Alfred Hitchcock was the faithfulness to the novel. And, Hitchcock, with any of his adapted works, was just a ruthless butcher. He just cut up the story yeah. and did whatever he needed to to make the best film. Where David O. Selznick was extremely concerned with audiences' reactions to it and their affinity yeah. to the source material. Um, yeah. So, and I know this new version, the script is from the original novel. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I wonder how many of these differences are 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 simply taken from the novel or are other liberties that the, the new filmmakers made. But, um, certainly within the context of the film, they don't work as well. And no,
1: it doesn't, you know, and even if it is more faithful to the novel, but it, yeah, it doesn't, that's the
0: point. Yeah. It doesn't work. Yeah. As
1: well. It doesn't work. Something about it is lacking. Um, the character, I base, I, I just feel like the character motivations are off because I'm not exactly aware of, it's not clear to me what maxim's intentions are or Re- rebecca or what their goals are i guess yeah like what 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 do they want in the scene i have no idea what maxim wants um where's no f- i mean he's it-
0: kind of a, a husk of a character there's not a lot there going on <laughs> unfortunately yeah, but in the
1: hitch one you you get it because of that opening scene you get a sense of this is mm-hmm. like a, a sort of you get a better sense of who he is i think and it I can sort of I kind of understand them a little bit better.
0: Yeah. I mean the biggest difference for me is that in Laurence Olivier's portrayal, he's kind of this he's this cold, you know, kind of distant, sort of patronizing but charming guy who yeah. you can tell behind the manners and the the suave upper class styling is deeply tormented by something. Um, yeah. That does not come through with the new Maxim, and it 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 really is kind of the whole point of that character. And when Army Hammer is just kind of getting mad, and then yeah. stops being mad a second later, uh, I don't know what to do with it, that. It, it feels I don't like know how a, to feel a difference about that.
1: Yeah. It, well, the difference is that like Army when he when he's reminded of Rebecca, it just seems like he's getting mad yeah he's just angry angry. he's angry a lot Um, whereas in in the in olivier's performance he seems like disturbed and Mm,
0: deeply so yeah
1: yeah and like unsettled i mean he's definitely upset but it's not i don't know it's it's a little less one-dimensional it feels like there's something else going on
0: yeah i think there's also more conflict between um Olivier and Joan Fontaine in the original too, like yeah. the sort of push and pull of their marriage and their interpersonal conflict is is greater where it more just feels like, you know, it seems like a lot of the sort of emotional conflict in the new film is, is kind of simplified to a degree that's not very satisfying where the whole conflict is just that, you know, the new Mrs. De Winter needs to win him over and make him forget about Rebecca. you know, yeah. when in the old version, there was a lot more complexity there, and there's a lot more that you can take about, you know, Maxim's relation to women in general and the main characters, you know, sort of insecurities and expectations of herself. Um, I think a little bit of that comes through at least with the with the new Mrs. De Winter in the new version. But simple, the, the, mm-hmm. the the complexity of Max's character is is completely lost, just totally lost in the new one.
1: Yeah, and it, there was for me one one of the interesting scenes that interesting in a, in a in a way that is confusing for me for uh, Maxim is the the beach scene in the in the twenty twenty Rebecca. Um, Maybe I missed, a, a, it's entirely possible that I missed something, but just writing down, um, I I have some notes. Uh, I was confused as to why um, he goes in, he, he, you know, they go swimming out on the beach and she's like, oh, come into the water, come into the water. At that point in time, I was not aware that Maxim was afraid of water because of Rebecca's
0: that, oh that no this is something i
1: noticed on. too and i so wanted to bring up i was
0: yeah,
1: totally this really upset and then me. afterwards when yeah. i find out and i re the film i'm like what mm-hmm. was how yeah. was i supposed to know like there's there's supposed to be conflict here because mm-hmm. maxim's character is afraid or he's not he's not afraid of the water but the he's water haunted by it up.
0: yeah it's yeah
1: yeah he's haunted by it the ocean is sort of a character in the story and he's haunted by it so he doesn't really like to think about it he doesn't like looking at the ocean and i don't think i knew that information at least if i did it wasn't it was like maybe said by a character in passing and i really didn't notice and maybe it's my fault but i did i i remember watching it and being so confused to find out later on and then thinking back and being like oh that's why that scene's there
0: yeah and I think this kind of brings me to one of my major criticisms of the first hour of the new film, which is a lot of it. I mean, this is a bit of a heavy accusation, but I do believe it. A lot of it, I think, is just really. um, Like fantasy romance, like the rich tortured guy trope we've seen it a lot yeah. recently in films and in novels that are mostly you know popular with young women or you know marketed in that way where sure, you have yeah. this rich powerful man who's just this tortured lonely boy on the inside and this <laughs> woman has to console him i mean twilight and then 50 shades of gray which is just fan fiction of twilight that sort of thing is very popular. <laughs> yeah. I, in a lot of ways, I don't think this film intentionally, but I think unintentionally turned Rebecca into that, which is absurd to me, because yeah. that's not <laughs> where Rebecca is at all. But if you watch yeah. the film closely in the first half, that's really a lot of the character interaction that you get between, um, the new Mrs. De Winter and, um, Maxim De Winter is yeah. And there's and, that like there's even the it's weird like Rebecca's like just this yeah, I mean, the scene on the beach so, they have like this really yeah, this weird makeout scene with all these terrible close-ups that I just I mean, it's despise. a softcore
1: sex scene and it's, yeah, it's
0: like really weird. <laughs> yes. And the original film which was made in uh, the the post-code era of Hollywood where they couldn't even mention sex, not even vaguely, um has so much more sexual tension. Yeah. There's so much more sexual tension between the characters because you know, not just because they're not allowed to, like, show sex in any way, but because, I mean, Alfred Hitchcock understands tension. Um,
1: and, Maybe. I'm not sure.
0: And this film statement. Uh, lacks <laughs> tension a lot. And I think the beginning is kind of the sort of linchpin in all of it, you know. I mean, the first hour of the new film, I, I just despise. I hate it. I think it gets better in the second half because the plot starts to happen more. But that's like, you know, the thing that makes the original film so great is that it's deeply compelling and interesting from the first moment, from that opening scene. You know, there's this really amazing, you know, sort of uh, like Dolly shot through the woods and it comes up onto this beautiful miniature of the mansion. That's like the main wide shot of Mandalay in the original version with the voiceover from Joan Fontaine. And then you cut straight into that scene with Maxim on the cliff, looking down at the ocean, contemplating his own suicide and Rebecca's death. Um, And like any great Hitchcock film, the tension is just this tenuous pull throughout the entire film. The new film has basically no tension. and. All of the uh, drama in the second half is not built up to at all. It just sort of happens. And it's interesting because the story is interesting. But it's really not aided by the first hour of the film. And the first hour of the film is borderline skippable. I mean, you can kind of just skip to where they go to Mandalay and just start watching the movie there. I think it would just be a better film.
1: (laughs) I was going to say, because you you get to the sort of like the big, you get to the climax of the film. And then it, you, you get to you know sort of the the like the court scene and the the you know did did Maxim murder Rebecca that sort of you, know, you get to yep. all that and it feels like a second movie it feels like yeah, another movie yeah, just totally started, yeah yeah which yeah. is I mean like not that's a, that's a terrible thing to happen but also that that second the second half of the ba- movie it's a better you know, movie. movie so it's, it's not it's yeah, not it's bad movies sp-
0: <laughs> <laughs> no one thing that I yeah. actually just just thought of as well on this same topic is. Um, one of the things I hate the most about the new film is the portrayal of Mrs. Van Hopper, who's basically a very insignificant character in the overall story, because she's only yeah, there she's for the getting, first. The, but
1: one the, of the first things that I wrote in my notes for the for the new Rebecca was too much emphasis on Van Hopper. Or Van yeah, Huffer.
0: it's played out so yeah, dramatically like, with her. And, I thought
1: she well. I thought she was going to be, like, a recurring, like, you know, person in the film. So I was really confused.
0: When she never showed up again. (laughs) When
1: she never showed up again. And they went to Manderley. I'm like, wait, so that part's over.
0: Yeah, she's just gone. Yep. Yeah, because,
1: and this was just my first impression, like, of of watching the film. But, yeah, it was really confusing because she felt like she was going to be, like, an antagonist or, or at least... It's something in that she was going to be around for a while because she's, she's around a lot. She's in, for the first 30 minutes of the movie, I guess, before they go to, I mean, I mean, in a sense, before they go to Manderley, she is the antagonist, but then she, but then she, once they go to Manderley, you know, it becomes, uh, Danvers. Yep. But it's just weird that they put that much emphasis. It's kind of a pacing and editing thing where it just like it feels like this movie is moving towards this way. And then it cuts off and they go to, you know, at around the 30 minute mark and they go to Manderley. And that first 30 minutes is gone. I think it's and now we have to hit the reset button. And I it's think really, it's really it was jarring.
0: It's a big thing that a lot of bad films do um, in post-production where. It's kind of boring at parts, so they feel like they have to add conflict and drama, but the more conflict and drama you add in regards to things that don't matter, the worse it is. Like, I'd rather it just kind of be boring than it be, like, completely confusing and overdramatic, because... well, because I think... I they, mean, they
1: misapplied yeah. the. Con- I mean, this is what you're saying, but it was it was applied in the wrong place. The conflict needed yep. to just be between Mrs. De Winter and Maxim. Yes, yeah. And then little little bits and pieces from Miss Van Hopper, but there's like way too much of Miss Van Hopper conflict.
0: Well, this also kind of, you know, supports my theory of it being a, a cheap fantasy romance because cutting <laughs> out that conflict. With Max and replacing it with another outside force until Danvers shows up, removes the need for conflict between the main pair and adds to the romantic sort of uh f- like romantic fulfillment for the audience, you know, because there's less conflict. I guess it them. feels
1: a little more scandalous.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, you know what
1: I mean in a way because it's like there's this there's this thing there's this person there that's telling you like that's upset that this is happening Mm -hmm. like stop doing this but when really it's not important to the overall story
0: not at all and she's not a relevant character in in any regards um but they they make a big fuss about her in the first 30 minutes and it's just annoying to watch too i mean it it, it's not believable it's not interesting her character is just annoying um and i I didn't like that at all (laughs) Uh I mean other things in the beginning that while we're here, I mean the music. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the music? Should we talk about the music? Yeah, well
1: it's really disappointing. It is extremely disappointing because Clint Mansell is a good composer. Yes. He is a good composer. And he he has composed uh I think he's composed. I think he did High Rise, but for for people who don't know Clint Mansell, you've probably heard his soundtrack for Rec Room for a Dream. Um, he did the soundtrack for Moon, which is an excellent soundtrack. I think he may have even gotten some awards for that, or at least some nominations. Um, he's a fantastic composer, and I, I've I've really loved his work. But this this in this movie, it's I don't know what happened it's horrible it sounds like music that you would get from like you know like those websites that youtubers use for like royalty-free music it just kind of yeah, sounds it like that doesn't it, it's <laughs> like so dull and lifeless and even worse it never
0: stops it never stops it just it's so going obnoxious and going and going yeah that was i think <laughs> it's, you it's know terrible besides the portrayal of mrs van hopper that was one of the most one of the things that made it most difficult for me to get through the first half of this film on viewing it both times as I watched yeah. it twice. Um, and yeah, it really is... It it takes a, a very mediocre film and it turns it into a slog. It turns it into something that is painful because the music just does not fucking stop and it's not helping the story at all. It's not helping anything except my migraines. It's just
1: filling in silence.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, um yeah, and you know, we mentioned the editing too, especially how they 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 you know paced the scenes with Van Hopper and sort of made her character more dramatic than it needed to be. Jonathan Amos is a really good editor too. He's done great work with Edgar Wright. Um Right, yeah. I mean, I thought Baby Driver was an exceptionally well cut film. Um Oh my god, yeah. And he did the editing for that, but he also cut this film and I mean, yeah, you can only yeah, so. do as well as what you're given from the director. Maybe, you know? the,
1: maybe, maybe the maybe the problem is maybe it's the director. I maybe, don't know. maybe uh, <laughs> we can only speculate. I'm not pointing any fingers. Yeah, <laughs> only speculate that maybe maybe there was some issues vision wise. Yeah. Um,
0: but in the in the in the Hitchcock film, like you know, like any great Hitchcock, everything is leading up to something else. Everything is intertwined, yeah. and, and the story functions in its totality as a whole. It doesn't feel like two films stitched together awkwardly. Uh, it really feels like one, you know, through line. And even Van Hopper, who's a less significant character in terms of, you know, like the, how dramatically she's played out in the film, is a much more interesting and important character in the original because she kind of sets up this ominous tone when they go to Manderley. Like she kind of has these ominous lines that she gives to the new Mrs. De Winter, you know, about, oh, did you do something you shouldn't have? And how did you rope him into this kind of yeah. setting up the marital dysfunction that's going to play out through the rest of the film? Um, and that's a total thing that they tried to do in the new film, but it doesn't work. At all, it completely fails because her character has been like obscenely and unnecessarily cruel to uh, the new Mrs. De Winter to the point where, you know, any sort of foreboding or ominous thing she could leave you with is is kind of the effect is sort of lost, I think. Um,
1: yeah, for sure. It's just too much all at once. It's just like hitting one. And a lot of I think a lot of the characters in the film in general are all hitting one the same sort of each character has like this pitch that they hit and that's the only one they hit. Um, and um, if you just do the same yeah, thing and- over and over and over again, and then you try and, you know, it's already like up to its eyeballs and emotion. And then you try and go beyond that. It doesn't, it doesn't, you you've sort of done everything, you, you know, you've jumped the gun kind of.
0: You need to hold back
1: a little bit so that when you get to that moment, it hits a little bit harder.
0: I mean, you know, you can compare it to music as well. You know, you. Like, just play loud. (laughs) Doesn't work. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's a great SpongeBob joke about that, right? Maybe if we just play loud, they won't realize how bad we are. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And that didn't end well for Squidward and it did not end well for this movie. Because they really cranked everything up to eleven and none of it was dramatic or (laughs) suspenseful.
1: What are these Uh, metaphors that we're making?
0: You gotta bring in the Spongebob references. Come on.
1: Yeah. I mean it's a great metaphor. I'm not saying it's bad. It's (laughs) hilariously accurate, I think. Well,
0: uh, I I could have gone with the spinal tap reference. I could've said they it it goes to eleven. True,
1: yeah.
0: It's louder than (laughs) ten. Yeah. It's <laughs> a funny thing about that, you know, on the IMDB page for Spinal Tap, they have the rating out of eleven instead of out of ten.
1: Oh, really? That's, that's a fun amazing. Easter
0: egg for everybody out there. You check that out. It exists. Um, that's so funny. Yeah, I, I I just learned about that recently, but I checked it and it's true. And it's it's actually amazing <laughs> that they did that. Um all right. The next thing I wanted to talk about was some praise for the new film. There's actually some stuff sure, that I like. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. The introduction of Danvers is really good. Uh, and them yeah. arriving at Mandalay is interesting. Um, yeah. There's this really great shot in the new film where they arrive at Mandalay and it's raining. And Mrs. Danvers is s- just standing there and... Um, you know, in this big room looking out the window kind of, you know, ominously away from the rest of the staff who are all lined up in front. Um, Yeah. Which is kind of spoiled by this stupid line that they gave Army Hammer about him saying, I hate when they do this. Yeah. I don't know why that line is there. Um, Didn't need to be there. It's just one of those things where it's like, it seems insulting to the audience, you know, (laughs) <laughs> like, they have to point out what the the staff is doing, like. But being nice to the new film, like I'm supposed to be, um, there's a nice bit of soundtrack here. Uh, there's this shallow piece as it dollies in on her and it's very ominous and you immediately get the establishment of her character, which is great because yeah. it's the best performance in the film by far. So they really oh, yeah. set up their best actress well. To do a phenomenal job and she delivers. Um, And before all this, or intercut with it, because there's a lot of cross cutting in the film, which I despise. I want to talk more about that. Um, (laughs) Okay. But there's this really beautiful shot where, you know, Army Hammer kind of flips um, what's her name? Lily Ames, right? Lily James. Lily James. Um, Lily. Lily? yeah, Lily. Lily James, yeah. Flips Lily James on his back, and then you yeah. have this upside-down shot of her, like this handheld of her looking at the staff while it's raining. I thought right. that was a really good shot. It, it kind of gave yeah. this sort of unsettling you know, emotion to this, what's supposed to be this kind of cheerful, playful, romantic moment. Um, and... Yeah. Then that's followed up by this, you know, great introduction scene of uh, Danvers. You have the dropping of the gloves, you know, and they both meet when they go to pick it down. That's in both films, and that's a great little character moment. Um, Yeah. And then it's kind of all of the good faith the film builds up with me is a little bit uh, soiled very quickly because when and this is a little detail that I'm going to be a stickler about but it pisses me off when they go into the bedroom when Danvers is showing the new Mrs. DeWinters around Mandalay and they go into the bedroom that she's going to stay in. That's originally a guest bedroom because Rebecca's bedroom is this whole thing. Yes. Um It's Lily James's character. It's the new Mrs. Danvers that points out that you can't see the ocean from that bedroom.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Why was that line given to her? Why did notice that? But that point makes that out. No, yeah. That makes no sense for her character at all. And the establishment and the where the bedrooms are and their relation to the ocean is very thematically important for the character dynamic of the film. And yeah. Rebecca's bedroom is really this super important place. And, I mean, Hitchcock does amazing things. Some of my favorite scenes in the original film are in rebecca's bedroom i mean the first scene when she goes in there and mrs danvers is showing her all the clothes and the lingerie i mean that scene is just terrifying that is hitchcock at his absolute best um and
1: yeah i do want to add a little a a little thing about the original one just a quick quick thought but i felt like in the hitchcock version both manderley and the ocean felt like characters in the movie, whereas I didn't really get that oh, sense completely. in the new one. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, not not the same. And, I mean, I think it's even more damning when you think about, like, the fact that they have advantages of working with a complete set. Like, a lot of Mandalay yep. in the original is, like, painted backgrounds and, you know, special Miniatures. effects and stuff like that. yeah. yeah whereas the new version has all of the technological advancements of 80 years of filmmaking. Uh, Mm -hmm. and they can't pull off the same atmosphere. I mean, it's Hitchcock, so okay. But in a lot of ways, they really didn't even get close and it was kind of disappointing. You didn't get the same. it didn't
1: even hit like a sort of like bare minimum of like good. Yeah, It, it didn't. I just didn't get that
0: at all. Yeah. And, there's there's kind of a sense of space that I just don't get in the new Mandalay that really disappointed me. Um, well
1: one of the really f- f- fantastic things speaking of space um with with the new one versus the the old one is um, in the old one there's so many beautiful shots of Mrs. de Winter inside of Mandalay where she's framed that like very wide and at the bottom and manderley is just like towering over her and it's just this big, oh totally you know, this big, yeah. confusing place to her and i think they like they kind of do it but not it, it it doesn't connect in the same way
0: i actually um yeah i mentioned that in my notes where they had like one shot um yeah when she first starts touring around the mandalay when she first arrived there was like one or two wide shots with camera movement of her walking through and i really liked that yeah. and then it just kind yeah. of ends and they never go back to that and i was like why didn't they just add a few more wide shots why didn't they go back to that at any point in the film like why don't they show the scope and the space of this place why don't they yeah put their main character up against her environment more i mean it's it's such an obvious part of the story but the failure to yeah, accent that is kind of unacceptable in a lot of ways. Yeah,
1: and a lot of a lot of Mrs. De Winter, you know, her being there is sort of, you know, like a fish out of water character where she's, this isn't her world and this place is intimidating and it's kind of, in, in the new film, just my impression of Manderley was this like, this grand, beautiful kind of gothic, but you know just just a really beautiful sort of english uh, estate place whereas in, in the original one it felt like it was more like you like hitchcock was putting you in mrs de winter's shoes and manderley felt sort of daunting it was it was big and it was sort of always hanging over her and it was difficult to understand and it was just not Something that she was comfortable with, and I felt that too. Uh, seeing her framed, in you know, in these wide shots that were you know she was just this tiny little speck in, in, yes, in the frame, yeah. and then everything else is just Manderly hanging over her. And I felt more empathy, I guess. Uh, oh, totally. For, with, yeah. With the main yeah. character, whereas I didn't really get that in the new one. Again, they did like a couple of wide shots, but I didn't get that same feeling it just felt kind of grand and Mm -hmm. beautiful not overwhelming and overbearing
0: yeah Um, and that you know i think that just adds to the the fantasy element of the new one right like the focus is not always kind of like a fairy tale yeah the focus is not always on the sort of you know uh emotion and tension of the story a lot of the times it's it's a little bit, you know, kind of like fan y in a way, you know, um, where it's just kind of placating to the audience rather than giving them something to really grapple with and, and you know, feel something about. Um, yeah. You know, it's just this big pretty mansion that she gets to live in now. Good for her
1: yeah that's what it feels like and really the only scary thing is is danvers which again she you know Kristen scott thomas plays her just absolutely wonderfully from the first scene there's some parts like directing parts that i don't agree with i i I mentioned this to you before we started recording but the thing where every time she does sort something sort of like mischievous or bad she like like sinks into the shadows like out of a fucking cartoon like some scooby-doo shit yeah
0: i didn't notice that but now that you pointed out it happens a lot
1: it if it happens once it's fine but it happens like three times like the same shot (laughs) (laughs) doing something something naughty and then she just sinks into the shadows
0: (laughs) it reminds me of another difference that i wanted to point out between the two films um that like Danvers in the Hitchcock version, she kind of moves around the mansion like a ghost. Like, she just appears versus. I don't know if you noticed this. Yeah. Um, Yes. But, like, a scene will start or, like, a scene will start with just Mrs. DeWinters and the other characters, and then the other characters will leave, and then it'll cut to, like, a different shot, and Danvers will just be there. She'll just be in the frame. And it's kind of like, oh my god, where the did you come from? like what the fuck? <laughs> um it, it's it's truly haunting like she she really is yeah. terrifying. um <laughs> in the new film, there's like actual jump scares, yeah. Why? Like the
1: the first sleepwalking scene, and then yeah, uh, Lily, and she's about to like touch him, and then she's like, "Don't don't wake him up." Waking up. Well, by the way, again, this this kind of goes back to the thing we we're talking about earlier. Maybe in the novel, he you know he he did sleepwalk, and that was a thing. Maybe but yeah. R- regardless, that it, it like it's weird in the movie.
0: It doesn't it's work. Odd, and no. I don't understand it. No, and a lot of the dream sequences i mean even in the hitchcock version aren't the strongest scenes but they're pretty insignificant and sparse there's like one or two they make a big muck of them in the new film and yeah there's
1: that jump scare with maxim sleepwalking and she just appears she's like and there's like like, the the
0: grass and the floor and she gets like sucked into it and
1: i i yeah so can you remind me why that happened? Because I've seen the movie twice and I literally don't remember I can't. why happened. There's that's
0: no, there's no thematic <laughs> or narrative thread that I okay. can tie that to. It seems, <laughs> it seems it's very extremely random. It's very faux art house. Just, I mean, there are a lot of faux art house things that this new you film just said, does.
1: You said the magic words about how I feel about Ben Wheatley. Faux, faux art house. house yeah, <laughs> yeah, he does a lot of that art- sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, it's like he watched Persona and he's like, oh, I can do this. (laughs) No, Ben. No, you didn't get the point. Um, Yeah, I think
1: he, he, I think, I mean, he's almost, he, I really like good cinematography and interesting visuals in, in a film, but I really don't like it when those take, priority over i guess what the the content of the images or like what Mm -hmm. or how you juxtapose those images like there isn't much care put into that just creating a beautiful image i'm not i don't i don't think anyone likes that i don't think there's anyone that really enjoys that um but it seems like a lot of ben wheatley's work will have these strong visuals but for no reason it's like but why is this here like it looks cool yeah um but i don't understand like how is this serving the story how is this serving the characters and the narrative it always seems to just kind of not be there it's always you know it's just like grasping at thin air there's just nothing there
0: um yeah it's really disappointing because there's plenty of that in this new one like the um like the at the ball scene, she's like watching the fireworks <laughs> and the light is just flashing red and blue on her. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't get anything from that. Yeah. Like not it, I, not even narratively, just like even emotionally. I didn't feel anything about that. The colors didn't yeah. really do anything to add to that moment.
1: When you take it out of context and it's just like a frame and you're just looking at it purely for visually, does this look cool? It's like, yes. Okay, great, but then, in, like, in the context of the film, narratively and emotionally, it just doesn't make any sense. I don't understand. I guess it was supposed to be like a heightened emotional moment, but it, it just but those didn't colors
0: work. don't connect to anything else in the film. Like, they, there's
1: yeah, it doesn't they, have any meaning.
0: Yeah, it's not built from anything else. Like, that's a lot of the things that I think people don't understand about abstract visuals and films is that they're usually tied to other things in the film. Like you can usually, you know, like um, there's usually some sort of thread that runs through a lot of visual, you know, uh, metaphor and makes it like possible for the audience to tie that back to something without just completely guessing at what the meaning could quite be.
1: I think that audience members do understand this just on a subconscious level. They might not be consciously aware of it, but they 100% know that something about that, like, yeah, it looked cool, but you give them something better and they'll be like, oh, wait, this is better. Like, I I, I do think you can tell the difference. Maybe not say out loud, um, you know. There's another visual metaphor that
0: he uses that I wanted to ask you about sure which i thought was kind of funny because it, it it reminds me of hitchcock which i feel like you don't want to do when tackling a story that hitchcock's done <laughs> what's with the birds over the mansion oh my
1: god oh my god that's so funny that you asked that because that's in my notes i, I one of the questions i wrote down was why I, are there birds <laughs>
0: My, my notes just birds? my 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 <laughs> notes just say birds metaphor question mark. I kind of liked it. I actually wasn't one of the things that I didn't like because it wasn't that intrusive into the film, you know. And no, but I, you know, it was kind of just, I just foreboding don't know why in a way. Was there? Yeah, there there just wasn't a lot to it. Um, the thing that you know. And to tie it back to the original, when it comes to like visual metaphor, Hitchcock does have a through line and it's flowers. There are flowers all over that film. And a lot of the time, um, and this is something I picked up from the commentary, don't, you know, credit me too much with this, but um, (laughs) there's a lot of symbolism that has to do with Rebecca and the use of flowers in the film. And there are flowers and a lot of shots. there are flowers and a lot of scenes. There are shadows of flowers on the wall behind characters. One of the first things that um the Joan Fontaine's character does um, to introduce us to her character and her clumsiness is she goes to have food at the um, you know the hotel and knocks over the flowers that are on the table and then
2: mm-hmm.
0: um. Oh, that's how they meet the second time. She knocks over the flowers, and then Maxim de Winter comes over and asks her to have lunch with her.
1: Oh, that's right. That's
0: right. Yeah. And, you know, and see, that's great filmmaking. That's, you know, tying this one visual metaphor in and then pulling it through the rest of the entire film. And you don't have to consciously recognize it because it still has an emotional impact. And people feel a certain way about flowers as well. Um, And that's what Hitchcock was truly just a master at, is is manipulating people's subconscious and emotional reactions to visuals in a film to get the right reactions out of people at the right time and create this sense of terror and tension and suspense. And he does that... In a lot of different ways. And one of the ways he does it is visual metaphor. Another way he does it is camera technique. And there's another great thing that he does that I picked up from the DVD commentary. We should just make a, cr- a Criterion collection commercial um, at this point.
1: That's <laughs> um, yeah, the best.
0: Go buy the Criterion DVD if you want to watch this film. Because it's the only way you're going to see it. The commentary and the extras are great too. There's even a 30-minute yep. documentary that is really interesting about the O. Selznick, Hitchcock clash of the titans over this production um, which we don't have time to get into but is really quite interesting as well one of the things that he does a lot that adds to that feeling you mentioned earlier of you know the new Miss Winter being small and you know terrified in this new place is he pulls the camera out on her a lot there'll be a shot of her and it'll pull out to a wide where she's just mm-hmm. kind of alone like there's a great one where her and uh, Maxim are having like breakfast for the first time, and they're at the two ends of this long ass table that shows yeah. the emotional distance between them in this marriage. And it starts yeah. in a close up of her, and then it pulls out to the wide. I mean, mm-hmm. that's sort of filmmaking technique that Kubrick would be using, and like Barry Lyndon and The Shining, like thirty years yeah. later. I mean, that is, you know, really just masterful use of camera to create tension and, you know, sort of connect the audience emotionally to the characters. Um, Yeah. That stuff is just, it's, it's not there in the new film. And that's just a different uh, caliber of filmmaking, you know, in my opinion. Yeah, it
1: is. And another thing I wanted to point out that um, I, I wrote down in my notes um, that I think really helped with making Manderly from from Hitchcock's sort of visual using using the visuals as a storytelling device is that um the original film I remember I think I think the reason why I it felt sort of like grand and beautiful is that the lighting like when they first go through Manderly it's like gold and it's soft and it feels like I'm it feels like I'm kind of watching like the crown I don't know if you know that show
0: but it's I know of it I haven't seen it yeah
1: it, it, it's, I haven't seen it, but it's, you know, about uh, like British royalty and it's like this very like soft, diffused, beautiful lighting sort of technique. Whereas in the original film, it's kind of mm-hmm. like, it's like almost German, exp- you know, like exp- it's very expressionistic. There's like a lot of shadows, um, sharp shadows on the walls. And yes, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it uses that. I think Hitchcock um, uses, you know uses that sort of lighting, and uh, to to make Manderley a little bit spookier. I totally, think, yeah. Was,
0: I mean, there yeah. one detail that I absolutely love. You know, one of my favorite, you know, uh, shots in the original film is is kind of a subtle one. It's the the long hallway shot of the hallway that leads to Rebecca's room. And the mm-hmm. doors are just kind of in the distance, you know, yeah. and she's just showing her through the mansion and looking at all the portraits and it's raining outside and you have the shadow of the rain through the windows cast against the yeah. walls. I mean, yeah. that's just, it's so visually just juicy and exciting to look at, you know, very stimulating. Yeah, and it's
1: not, it's not just visual beauty for the sake of visual beauty yeah. like it matches the emotional exactly state of, of mm-hmm. the character who's experiencing it yep um
0: yeah and then you know you have this shot the guy um uh who was the film i i, I don't remember the guy's name who did the commentary i really should should have wrote it down because i reference him a lot because he great really good commentary but he mentions um You know, only Hitchcock could make a dog getting up and walking away so ominous and foreboding. (laughs) Because when they get to the door of Rebecca's room, that Danvers is kind of, you know, like, we're not going to go over there. You know, that's that's Rebecca's old room. There's that black dog just sitting in front of it, and it gets up and walks away. And then you're just left with those two doors there, and it's like, just... Just chilling, you know, like the same vibes that to bring Kubrick back into it that you'd get in the shining, like forty years or uh yeah, forty years later in the shining. Yeah,
1: forty years later.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, really just masterful atmospheric filmmaking and world building to really give yeah, you just, just this you know haunting sense of space in this place.
1: Yeah, and looking looking for ways to, to looking for ways to, you know, tell the story and, and, and not being lazy about it, but like looking for like tiny little details. It's like, where can I, where can I pull some more apprehension out for the audience? Like how, how can I, you know, make this sort of thing intense? And, um, Hitchcock's just, I mean, he's, I feel like saying, you know, he's really good at that is underrated. You know, everyone said every, you know, you can't really say enough good things about Hitchcock, I guess, because no matter what you say, you're kind of underrating his ability to pull yeah. apprehension seemingly out of thin air. Yeah. Um, and he, he he really, I think for me, talking about favorite shots, um, I thought the shot of when they're, it's like the climax of the film and they're in the like boathouse, uh, I forgot the cottage or whatever.
0: Oh, it's the, the sh- it's the empty it's yeah, the empty shot. Yeah, the empty shot. Oh my god, that <laughs> shot is mind-blowing. Yeah. It was blowing I mean, my mind. If if you have uh, to if you have to take one thing away from this episode, um I would say to watch both of the films and then rewatch the scenes where Maxim explains and confesses his relationship with Rebecca. And his killing of her, in the original film, mm-hmm. unfortunately, because of the censors, it was an accident. But yes. um, those two scenes are just indifferently, and it's not even one of the worst scenes. It's one of the better scenes in the new film, just because it's there's yeah. actually drama there, so they don't need to like mm-hmm. heighten it with all this bullshit. Um, but In the original film, it's like this 10 minute long scene where you have the actors, you know, walking around, you know, this this cabin and. um, You know, Laurence Olivier just gives this absolutely haunting performance, and then you have that shot you you brought up, which I mean, it's just it's kind of mind blowing. It's one of those things where I watch it and every time I'm just kind of, you know. I'm just sort of in awe of what's yeah I'm just of what's being totally done.
1: amazed yeah at how, both how like bold and ballsy that shot is and also just how it's it's like there's no there was no other way to shoot that scene it's right. like the, yeah, it, yeah, yeah that's what it feels like mm-hmm. is it feels like decision making wise like on paper like thinking about it it feels insane but then you look at it it's like there's there's no other way this could have been shot this is the best way to shoot it. And it's when the shot first happens, I wasn't sure what was going on. I was like, it almost, you know, it starts off and it feels like an unmotivated like camera movement. I was confused. And then after like a second or two, it clicked and it just blew my mind. It was absolutely incredible. And it just pans all the way over. And then it, goes all the way over to Lawrence Olivier yeah, and it lands on him about Rebecca like the ghost yeah. is like you know there and Rebecca's ghost is there and like yeah it's a subjective
0: camera yeah it's the subjective yeah. camera of the sort of you know moving through the environment mm-hmm. like you you were in Rebecca's perspective you know
1: yeah
0: i mean and hitchcock was the mas- master of that um, i have my notes for the second cabin scene in the new film This is what I wrote about that. I said, the cabin scene works. Oh, is that it? No, I wrote more, but that's what I opened with. The cabin scene works. (laughs) The cabin
1: scene works. Yeah. So all the praise that we
0: just give. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's better for a lot of the things that I, you know, I didn't have as harsh words for it as some other things in the film as we've already gone over. Yeah, but one of the things that really perplexed me was the lighting. You have this green orange lighting in this. I don't even know if you remember that. Um, no, it's really ugly, and I don't understand it. Um, it's like blue orange or blue yellow, but green, and it just looks—it cool. just looks ugly. Um, <laughs> it's it's boring. The use of like space and depth is just not there. And yeah, the reveals and the twists of the scene don't hit the same way because Army Hammer's performance is not captivating in the way that Lawrence Olivier's is, and the scene is just not paced and directed in a way with the camera that really just you know it, it is kind of mind blowing. It just just kind of works. It works mm-hmm. narratively, but yeah it's it's not the same and that's really sort of what you're missing when you're watching the new film is you you get the story but you don't you don't really experience it in the way that i feel like people deserve to and the hitchcock yeah it doesn't feel as like visceral no it it,
1: it, the 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 original is just so you're you're so just enveloped by this, the this, the this, this story and Mandalee and and Rebecca and and all this sort of stuff, um, and I just never got, I never really got that from the remake, and there are some, like you said, there are some good moments, um, and some moments that work, but it's it's it's. i don't know what to say it's just
0: well it just there is one underwhelming there's another scene we do need to talk about though kent the
1: ball the ball scene right
0: we got to talk about the ballroom scene
1: the ballroom scene yeah because that that to to me that is a scene that should have been left on the cutting room floor um there's no reason for that scene to be in the movie it's The not thing
0: good. that's most disappointing, kind of like the introduction of Danvers and then into the dream sequence, which I hated, um, the introduction of Danvers is good. It's actually one of the parts of the film that I think is just legitimately Yeah, good. I got excited Yeah. Um, watching that. And then you have the dream sequence with him sleepwalking, and uh, it's just kind of bullshit. Um, mm-hmm. And then I'm kind of like, oh, okay, we're back to this nonsense. The ballroom scene starts off well. I really love the introduction and build-up to it, which is something that you don't have in the original film. Um, you know, you don't have all these cars showing up in the rain and people being rushed inside with these umbrellas. You don't have the whole, yeah, the build-up to it. And I don't think it was lacking in the Hitchcock version, but it definitely adds a sense of heightened drama and importance. And it, at a point yeah. in the film where it's necessary or not, yeah, nece- it's a very it- you know, it, it makes sense. It's a pretty
1: pivotal scene in the film.
0: Yeah. So it works. Um, and, you know, you have her coming down the stairs, and then Army Hammer's just kind of completely appalled by what he sees and runs off. And you have her chasing yeah. him through the crowd. Everything up to that point was okay, I was okay with. Um, yeah. And then. They already had shots of like who's supposed to be Rebecca in the red dress, like running, you know, and her visions of that, which were garbage the whole film. That shows up again. You have, you know, Danvers kind of hawking over her, which is, which works and adds to the drama. Yeah. Yeah. And then what happens next is like hard to explain without having seen the film because it it sounds nonsensical like like how do we explain this scene in a way that doesn't make us sound like fucking lunatics <laughs> because why would you put this in your movie like why would you even shoot this like i know they should yeah. have cut it but like
1: Yeah, I, did, I in my notes for the scene in question, I wrote, "What in the absolute fuck is happening?" <laughs> that's that's, that's <laughs> I didn't so, use any like profanity yeah. in the rest of my notes. That's the one time I decided it was necessary because I was very very confused as to what was going on. It got the out of hand like really fast.
0: For the uninitiated. Or people who are just confused? Because I'm confused. Essentially, what happens is she chases uh, Maxim de Winter through the ball, looking for him after she pissed him off by wearing Rebecca's dress yeah. unknowingly, which was set up by Mrs. Danvers to undermine yep. them because Danvers mm-hmm. is mad at her for replacing Rebecca. All right, that's yes. the setup. So she's yeah. running through, Danvers is watching her, kind of, you know, seeing her plan work out and yeah. <clears throat> the chase scene as she's moving through the crowd looking for uh max gets a little bit more trippy she starts having visions of the lady in the red dress again you know chasing her through the she goes into the basement where all the servants yeah. are and they're like you shouldn't be here in this really like stern kind of tone that yeah seemed weird um yeah. And then she goes back into the main ballroom floor and is encircled by the party guests who start chanting Rebecca, Rebecca, Rebecca.
1: Yeah. Rebecca Rebecca. And they're they're like all spinning around her in circles. Yeah,
0: they're spinning in a circle, yeah.
1: So there's a scene. There's a there's, there's a scene exactly the same as that in another movie. Do you know what movie it is? And it, and I think it works well on this movie because there's a good reason for it because it it matches what, what yeah. the character who's experiencing it is going through. Do you know what movie?
0: No, I, I can't even begin. I didn't connect this to anything. I just saw it and my it, brain turned off.
1: It happens in Requiem for a Dream to uh, the, right. the mother of Jared Leto. Right. Uh, because yeah. she's taking too many uppers yep. and she has like a total, yep. mm-hmm. she has a nervous breakdown. Yeah. And you get like the, the thing that she's been obsessing really with and... the TV. Yeah. Yeah. The characters have the TV come out and start spinning mm-hmm. around her mm-hmm. and saying crazy stuff. But in that movie it works, right? Because, well, it's set up properly. Yeah. And also yeah. the characters having a literal nervous breakdown, whereas in, The Rebecca remake, the main character is just she she she's not having. I mean, she's not having a nervous breakdown, but they make it seem like she is. They make it seem like she's going insane.
0: Yeah, she's not going insane. She's just she's just really sad because she wanted to win over her husband and then didn't. That's the conflict. And she made a mistake and he's. Pissed, there's no reason like, for her oh, to no, go to
1: i not you
0: know yeah contrast this with what happens after this in the original where you get a great bit of um negative acting which is a a nice technical term i've um, never
1: heard that term in my life I, what is that i
0: learned this as well from the commentary again advertising for the criterion collection go by the dvd Um, negative acting is a technique that hitchcock loved where you would get a reaction out of a character by having them start on a facial expression and then change to something else um so it's done in the scene with the reveal because they don't have this grand setup for her where everybody's waiting for her to come down she just kind of comes down to the stairs late And all the characters are talking with their back turns to her. And she kind of like walks up to them and is like, "Mm "Hmm." and then, you know, um, Max and his sister and uh, brother-in-law turn around and you see his face go from normal to deeply disturbed and upset. And that's negative acting in a sense. Um, And um, so you get that great moment. the reveal which is a lot less grand and you know visually impressive but hits the story point just as well um and you know she's devastated and sad instead of you know psychotic and you know uh hallucinating um which makes a (laughs) bit more sense um and then mrs danvers is there and she knows mrs danvers set her up so she gets mad at mrs danvers and she chases her into rebecca's room and she's like i'm gonna kill you but she's too weak and mrs danvers has power over her she's manipulating her and kind of like you know the, the sort of snake like danvers sort of lures her back into her lair and then you know convinces her that she'll never be good enough he's never gonna love you rebecca was too perfect you're nothing to him and there's right. this really, really, really good shot. This just quintessentially good shot, where, um, uh, Jean Fontaine as Mrs. De Winters falls in the bed, right? And she's just like sobbing at this point. Yeah. yeah. And Danvers is lording over you, and you get this close up of of her face, and she looks down at the bed, and Mrs. DeWinter, and then looks up to her left, creating this visual triangle. And what she's looking at to her left is the window. And the shot doesn't cut. Instead, it pulls out. Hitchcock technique, again, cutting in the camera. It pulls out and moves into another shot where you have the bed now in frame with her lying on it. And Danvers standing next to the window. And opening the window as the shot pulls into frame. Yeah. And within one shot, he just masterfully creates the sinister plot that Danvers just thinks of to coerce her into killing herself. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really just unbelievably suspenseful and like compelling stuff. And in the other film. You have people chanting rebecca in a circle
1: yeah rebecca rebecca and there's fireworks and she's screaming <laughs> and, and the camera and the funny thing is it's the, doing the funny thing is the thing where the camera spins around and it's really hokey and stupid
0: oh sorry my my internet just uh, <clears throat> skipped there um
1: no oh, that's great
0: you, you said the camera spins around.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, the camera, you know, the, I mean, if you can imagine it, there's like just, you know, characters doing ring around the rosy around Mrs. DeWender and the camera is like spinning around in circles inside of that circle, looking yeah. at everyone on the outside, you know, and it just looks dumb.
0: Which is always a dubious technique. Anyways. Um, yes. Uh, <clears throat> the funny thing about it, though, is that you know, you mentioned they could have just left this on the cutting room floor. They really could have. Because the immediate next scene on the beach is one of the better scenes in the film. You have this really yeah. cool shot of Rebecca Skellington. Skellington. Skellington? <laughs> yeah. Jack Skellington. Um yeah. <laughs> you have this really cool shot of Rebecca's skeleton floating in the water. It kind of gave me a Jonathan Glazer vibes from
1: yeah, under the skin. Um, yeah, it's a little creepy.
0: Yeah, very creepy. And then, you know, these really cool shots of the, the ship being pulled up from the depths and, you know, you get this whole scene on the beach that's a you know, pretty good f- scene in the film. And like. Like, why is that? moment with them chanting rebecca in the circle there like it's just it's so unbelievably out of place like i i can't i cannot get over this i, well, I don't and it's think another I thing
1: will. i don't think i will either and the, the other thing is that it's it's again it's sort of it's a really massive pacing issue because it feels oh, totally. too emotional it, it hits too high of an emotional point too early in the film it's, yep. it's just too much, too fast again, yeah, it, but like the, not just, yeah. this is not like within like a scene, but rather like structurally as a film, the, the yes. film as a yeah, whole yeah, yeah. is hitting yeah. a high point way too early and mm. it just doesn't work. And the, the other thing I wanted to mention about the original film is that the, what you're talking about with Danvers setting up this sort of, you know, she's subtly trying to coax, uh, Mrs. DeWinter into committing suicide and using that window is that it's not even, it, it, it's even more amazing that, that that window and that idea sort of isn't just a one-off thing either. It actually comes back in play at the end with, with Danvers standing in that window as she's yeah, and burning it, down Manderley.
0: Yeah, and it um, looks like she's going to jump out and kill herself, but instead the the falling burning logs of the mansion crush her instead.
1: Yeah, so it's like yep. there's Th- that scene is functioning as one thing, but it's actually also a setup yep. for Mrs. Danvers in-, in the end of the film. And that's, I mean, to me, that's that's too many layers. I can't, I can't, my, <laughs> I, I can't think like that. My brain is uh, that's just insane to me that you can pack so much into just a few moments. It's got more layers thoughts. than a Chris it's, Nolan
0: it's- film. <laughs> we gotta get our chris nolan joke in every episode I, I think we had one in the first episode i hope we did we better. What
1: better we say well i don't know we always we always have good things to say about nolan
0: yeah we always like to to make fun of our favorite filmmaker um <laughs>
1: chris,
0: <laughs> there were points in this film that gave me chris nolan vibes to go off track a well you know bit.
1: i mean if i mean honestly talking about chris nolan is that like like him or not, he's a pretty influential filmmaker. Oh my god, yeah, um, he's affected how like basically the the Western world makes films in some sense.
0: Yeah, it was I it think. was actually the um, it was the one of the dream sequences where there's this like creepy whispered voiceover, and mm-hmm. there's all of this like montage cutting. It gave me like Chris Nolan trailer. Vi- I was like, am I watching the trailer to like a new high concept Chris <laughs> Nolan film or some shit like that? <laughs> it, it just seemed... There are a lot of uses of montage and cross-cutting in the new film that are just just absolute trash. There's a lot of cross-cutting I think just not, in that film.
1: Just not really like well thought out and well... I, yeah. Hmm.
0: Like, why is there so much cross-cutting in the new film? This is something that I noticed second time watching it, and I just... I was just kind of like, why?
1: Well, I guess... I'm I'm assuming like I you know I mean I don't agree with the 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 decision but the people who edited the film and who directed the film obviously they're people in the industry and they're they know. I'm I'm just trying to imagine why they would use it and when I think of cross cutting as a technique I think of it as a technique that you use to show you're both trying to show parallel action and also conflict through that parallel action yes so i think that that part they know they have to i just don't uh, but I, i get a little bit confused as to why they decided it was a good idea to put into the movie if maybe they just didn't feel there was enough conflict so they wanted to you know use some editing to spice it up um i don't know
0: i blame george lucas
1: why is that is that a george lucas thing
0: well uh the the original star wars trilogy especially the uh like the endings of them famously always had cross cutting and it's kind of a star wars staple now they always do cross cut um, action so, okay yeah uh, fuck i, you, I don't know lucas. star wars
1: that well i'm not a am not an actual film buff i'm a i'm a fraud
0: True, yeah, yeah,
1: Yeah. don't really like Star Wars that much, anyways.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, um,
0: what's you know, what I just learned the other day is, um, was it Ron Howard or someone directed the, the Solo movie, the Han Solo movie? Oh, yeah, no, that was that
1: was a big controversy at the time because so this gets into some like nitty gritty, like DGA sort of directors guild of America stuff right, right, and, yeah, yeah. and like how things work. But basically they, so Kathleen Kennedy, the the producer, she produces a lot of like Disney films. She's like a very influential and powerful uh, figure in the film industry. And she, and she, Oh, does oh yeah. <laughs> Star Wars. She, she basically does any like big Disney film. Like Kathleen Kennedy is there somewhere. Um, and she, they they had hired, I cannot remember for the life of me, the director's names, but the brothers. And they directed like 21 Jump Street and 22 Jump Street with like right. Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum. Right, 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 right. Um, they had done those two films. And it, I actually like those movies as comedies. I, I found them in No, they're good. Yeah, um, they're not that bad. They are fun movies to watch. I think I just like Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum. They're just kind of funny. Um, so That, also that true. definitely helps. Yep. <laughs> but... So they hired them to do solo. And they got through they they had filmed like I can't remember it was like 70% of the film had been completed. And then they fired them. Uh Kathleen Kennedy like the executive producers I think fired fired them because they didn't they they you know creative differences is the official phrase used but I think what people say happened is that these two directors known for comedy were making the film more funny than the producers wanted it to be. And they didn't like that. Um, which is totally befuddling to me why you would hire directors known for comedy and then get mad at them for making your movie funny. Um, but that's a little bit beside the point, but they fired them. And they had to bring in a new director and they brought in Ron Howard. And I can't Which remember
0: baffling why you would bring Ron Howard for that. I mean.
1: Well, maybe. I mean, he's reliable. He's like a He's like I, a Yeah. Well, I mean, he's I like guess a I just... John Deere tractor or something. I don't know. Are those <laughs> even reliable? I don't know. He's, you can count on him to get the job done. Like, you'll finish it, right? He, he's I, not, I hope... He's low risk.
0: <laughs> oh, man. I hope there's some tractor enthusiast that finds this podcast and just gets really, really angry at you. He's like, John Deere, the worst <laughs> fucking
1: tractor. <laughs> I don't know what I was trying to say. I was just trying to say that he's like very low risk and reliable. I'm yeah, he's, sure like
0: a, he he's like a he's like a two thousand one Camry. You know,
1: just yeah, know okay, what it's gonna a, do. A, you know what you get. Yeah, yeah, that's a way better comparison. <laughs> Thank you. So, anyways, they bring him in to finish the film. Now there's this weird, and you can't call me on this because I'm just doing this from from memory but the dga stipulates like um crediting for directors like yep yeah, um, yeah, yeah how much of the film you have to shoot and you know to be credited and that sort of stuff and there's just a weird thing where like if you film over 70 percent of it then the guild and then you then you get um you have to be credited for it and I think you're also, you are legally like allowed to be involved in the post-production process. And they got fired right before they technically hit that 70% mark. And then they brought in Ron <laughs> Howard, who reshot like 50% of the film. yeah, And then his his involvement in the film... And again, take this with a grain of salt. I'm just trying to remember. I think I'm getting the basic story sort of right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But his involvement in the film went over that that mark after they brought him in, and so he gets sole credit for it gotcha. uh, for the movie. And it's just some like weird DGA like contractual. Bullshit, it's it's yeah. actually really complicated, and it's a really interesting story that I would definitely yeah read about because it's. It's it's interesting what happened, but yeah. That was here's, a really long.
0: Well, here's my question story. for you. Um <laughs> why aren't um uh sorry, I think I just bumped my mic. Um so I'll start over. Uh why aren't sci-fi action films allowed to be like fun anymore?
1: Um I don't know. Um, Maybe
0: Nolan? These guys... Honestly, yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking fucking Nolan, dude, again. (laughs) He's going to haunt us forever. You cannot (laughs) escape the Nolan. He's all-encompassing. I mean, I
1: think... uh, Well, I... I guess it, it for me it also depends on like how generous you're going to be with sci-fi action because like if you want to say that like Doctor Strange is like sci-fi action and some Marvel films are sci-fi action they I I, don't, I I personally don't really like the movies but they're you're certainly like light and well, they're not always light, it depends, but they can be light. They have funny moments and jokes, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Improv. So, if you're gonna be but, generous with the term, then y- y- I think there are some out there, but if it's more like strictly like sci fi action, I don't know because they're all like dark and gritty and realistic,
0: which is yeah, but even even not. like Marvel, like, and not to say that I don't love like dark, gritty sci fi because I do done well oh yeah um like like i mean i don't know iron man was fun
1: oh yeah iron man super fun i love that movie like but even marvel like like
0: like, i I don't keep up with the marvel films but i know people who do and they've complained about how they've just gotten more and more drab and dismal and like long-winded and depressing you know it's like
1: yeah and i think it's like right, the fucking
0: entropic heard... principle of like popular cinema. It always fucking tends towards becoming a Chris Nolan film.
1: Yeah, I think so. <laughs> because for better or worse, he has had a massive influence on. Well, the the, the thing is though is like the, like the the film that really you know sort of changed that was like the Dark Knight, right? I mean, it's not a sci fi film, but the dark gritty superhero yep. film. But that, that's a I I. I think it's overrated, but I think it's a good movie. Like it's definitely a good movie. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And it does that style of gritty realism better than any copycats.
0: Oh right? god, yeah, no, for sure. Um.
1: So yeah, I don't know. You can't have there. There aren't.
0: You You can't make Back to the Future anymore.
1: No, you can't. Which is a shame because. It's like a good great movie. movies. Yeah. I enjoy them. I like them. They're fun.
0: Yeah, they're fun. Yeah. I have not Yeah,
1: When I think about it, I haven't seen any of those.
0: Rest like, in peace, fun. John Hughes. So he made those kind of movies fun. You know, like Ferris Bueller yeah, and shit. Like the fun, mm. you know, family blockbuster. It's not art. It's not like high art. It's not like amazing, but you know. There's theme, there's good characters there, but it's fun. And it's not three hours of depressing well, th- over dramatic nonsense.
1: I think they're well made and well thought out. And the most important thing is that they're honest. Yep. Um they're genuine. Uh, they they you know, they're you, Yeah you can feel it when you watch those movies, I think. Yeah, not and to say t- that those movies don't exist now. I don't. I don't want to sound like an old man. of Like, all oh, movies <laughs> no. aren't the same anymore. No, no. There's they are. Of it, it, amazing just,
0: cinema out there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think there's.
1: I, I think I just. I just get mildly bothered that the the sort of like tentpole event film dominates so much.
0: Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It it just has like a huge piece of the pie. That's yep. really all that I, I don't. I'm not opposed to those films existing. I Mm -hmm. just am opposed to how much they exist. (laughs) There's there's so much of it. It's a little bit exhausting, you know?
0: I mean, yeah, it's very exhausting. And it's why I really just kind of disengaged with those movies at some point and stopped watching them.
1: Yeah, Um, I'll go watch them with friends. If I get invited out, Like, I'm like, hell yeah, let's go.
0: Instead, I just watch... That's more for the... I watch bullshit like this and torture myself on Netflix with a movie. I knew I wasn't going to like <laughs> the new Rebecca. <laughs> yeah. It's the it's. But I, I mean, it, it's, it's really interesting. I think, you know, and that's the whole point of doing this episode and watching both of these films is that, I mean, it shows you the difference that a director and a producer and good casting and just overall like vision and, and, passion for cinema um in a way that you know translates into a much much more compelling film uh
1: yeah because I
0: think... yeah the original rebecca it's a hitchcock classic it's a david the classic it is suspenseful and mystifying and haunting from the very first reel to the last uh, yeah. and That's just not something the new film delivers on at all. It's it's very patchy. It's got a lot of extremely questionable decisions. It's got some nice moments, but it just it doesn't work. It doesn't function as a film.
1: Going back to the thing that I was saying earlier about films being honest and genuine, um, I had. I don't get that from the new Rebecca, nor did I get that from High Rise Ben Wheatley's other phone. I, I get a little bit of the opposite. I, I feel there's kind of a bit... It, it's not carelessness that causes those like weird visuals that have nothing to do with the story. It feels more like arrogance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't feel... It doesn't feel like it's coming from a place that... I don't know. It, it, it's it's hard to put into words, but it, it doesn't feel as honest. Um, so, something about it feels like it's coming from a place of like, look how cool this is.
0: Yeah. Um, and, you know, that arrogance and that kind of, you know, sort of look how cool this is feeling translates perfectly into the feeling that I got from it, which was supreme insecurity
1: yeah <laughs>
0: just immense insecurity in the story and the characters and your ability to like follow through on the vision without all these gimmicks and terrible editing and just like completely pointless full art house visuals and and everything yeah because insecurity and arrogance are like you know hand in hand to wonderland they're like the same thing um yeah I wish I could
1: just tell him to like stop taking yourself so seriously. Just, <laughs> just, just, just try just, and make a know. good I film. Mean, yeah. Like stop, stop trying so hard to 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 make like a masterpiece because that's what it feels like. You know what I mean? You ever see those movies where you can like feel like the pe- whoever was making this was tr- just trying way too hard to make a masterpiece?
0: <laughs> Chris Nolan. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we're gonna lose all three of our listener, all two of our listeners we have no listeners not yet
0: yeah our two listeners are chris nolan and his mom they're gonna be real mad <laughs>
1: it, you're gonna you know
0: no chris nolan and his five don't, million don't children on imdv is more like it
1: yeah uh we're gonna get attacked by the nolan fanboys
0: God. Even oh, there's one more thing. It doesn't that I make wanted. sense
1: because I think we both like Nolan, just not in the same way as.
0: Yeah, I, I, yeah, Nolan's I like head. Nolan, but I don't always like his films. I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah. Anyways, what were you saying?
0: Yeah, the the other thing that I wanted to talk about, you know, to sort of wrap up the podcast is yeah the ending. We already talked about the ending of the original film.
1: Yes. But the well, ending of yeah. the
0: new film, which like other parts in the film has a good scene thrown in there, which is Mm -hmm. Danvers drowning herself. Yeah. I thought that was a nice, you know, now her burning the mansion is terrible uh, where she throws the gasoline on the bed. I, (laughs) yeah, I hated how that was shot. And the Hitchcock version is completely, I mean, it's classic Hitchcock where you have the light of the candle moving through the, the rooms of the mansion you know, and she yeah. carries the candle up and then, you know, you know what's going to happen. So you just cut away and then the thing's on fire. You know, yeah. it's like the bomb under the table thing, because then you have the the scene of them driving back from the inquest, just like talking right. casually. And, you know, yeah, you know what's happening and they see the light on the horizon. They're like, you know, that can't be the dawn, you know, and he checks his watch yeah. and they're like, oh, my God, Mandalay, you know, just pure yeah. classic Hitchcock. Instead you get yeah. this garbage scene where she throws gasoline on the bed and it's really cheesy. Um and then she drowns herself, which I thought was nice, plays into the character. There's actually some you know thematic yeah, it still harmony makes there. Sense. Yeah, because you know that's where Rebecca went after she died. Yeah. Um one thing that I do need to say quickly though, is um did you get like sort of romantic subtext? with rebecca and danvers in the original film
1: in the hitchcock version
0: yes yeah
1: i cannot answer that because i i'm i'm i think i'm confusing the two movies because i felt that way with one of them but i don't actually remember which one it was
0: (laughs) Because that was actually a huge um, thing that the censors wanted to avoid. But I think Hitchcock did it anyways and just kind of snuck it right past their faces. Okay. And it's like really prevalent. I mean, the scene where she's mm-hmm. showing off all the lingerie of.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Rebecca. And, you know, she has the fur coat and she puts it up to, you know, Joan Fontaine's face. And she brings her over to the bed and there's this beautiful shot where the camera like passes the threshold of the bedpost to show Mrs. Danvers kind of like, oh my God, my cat is meowing at me. Hold on.
1: Oh, that's great. It's a recurring, recurring segment. Uh, Kevin's cat wants to be let out of the room or Kevin's cat is hungry or... Nella
0: wants to be... Just upset. Nella wants to be let out of the room, and now she will meow to get back in the room because she is a bastard, just like all cats are bastards. Um, (laughs) No! I love her, but, yeah, cats are just (laughs) bastards, dude. Um, But, yeah, um, don't get me wrong. I love cats. Cats are amazing, but... (laughs) Little fuckers. Um, But, yeah, so... You have this beautiful romantic subtext that did not come through in the new version for me, which I didn't like. because so I thought that was such an interesting thing. You know, an interesting that's honestly element. something
1: that like, I mean. That that. Yeah, I, I didn't get super strongly, but it did feel sort of that way, but it wasn't strong enough for me to like actually remember. So it's something that if I watch the original again, I'll keep in mind. But it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, look for uh, that. With, with um, the scenes that you describe, like yeah, there it, it's the, there's definitely something, some some sort of something underneath the surface.
0: Yeah, and so that scene, the Danvers arc ends nicely with her dying in the fire, and Mandalay. There- yeah. Danvers' scene ends nicely in the new one, too, with her, you know, jumping in the sea. Yeah. And then, um. The ending of the original film is just that. You have Yeah,
1: it just ends.
0: Sounds- yeah, the the similar shot to Citizen Kane, where, you know, it zooms in on the the uh the um pillowcase with rebecca's monogram on it um yeah. and it goes up in flames and it's like the end selznick international production whatever
1: very very of that time stylistically very
0: yeah very classic you know yeah. 40s kind of cinema movies it, just ended back then yeah like Susan kane C- would do the same thing with you know Rosebud. Um um a few years later um and uh, a lot of similarities between Xanadu and Mandalay, in those two films. Um, yeah, interesting thing to talk about too. Also, the um, have time for
1: the the one 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 quick uh, Citizen Kane um, similarity is uh, you know, them sitting at the dining table and being very far apart. It's right. sort of like a thing that they use in Citizen Kane too.
0: Yep yeah 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 similar sort of thing show
1: emotional distance
0: yeah you know both wells and hitchcock both masters arrive at similar conclusions makes sense yeah (laughs) now ben wheatley ends his film with um i don't remember how it ends i do unfortunately i wish i didn't it ends with them you know in some oh that's right
1: they're like on vacation again. Or they're,
0: yeah, they're on vacation again, talking about how they're happy now. And it just bookends the narration pretty much. And, you know, she's like diarying all like she's writing a diary about all of her or a memoir about all of her experiences yeah. in Mandalay or whatever. I mean, and they're happy also and they stylistically like a, very much of this time. Very much of this time. Yes. You know, got to yeah. fucking bookend everything. Um, yeah. Needs an but,
1: epilogue. Wrap things up
0: you stop doing that unless you're wes anderson like holy shit um (laughs) like for real um yeah wes is good at it huh wes is really good at it i mean Mm. he he like you want to talk about like the layers in inception what about the layers in grand budapest where it's like 10 different (laughs) bookends and i yeah that was awesome this film not so much um it's not even a huge thing it's just like the ending Um, and yeah, my notes on this just say the last scene is just complete dog shit. (laughs) And that was how I felt.
1: Yeah.
0: That's still how I I forgot
1: about it. I, I mean, I, and I watched the movie twice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which is
1: terrible. Like I watched your movie twice in like a, like a two week span and I can't remember some things from it.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah. I mean I can remember like every scene in in uh the the Hitchcock original. I mean like they're all great.
1: <laughs> I definitely remember it remember it clearer, probably because I was more engaged with what was going on. Oh, yeah, I mean totally. So I mean it's it just it, it's just
0: a more like engaging and memorable film. So of course you're gonna yeah. wanna remember it more, but yeah, but I think that just really, like, it's just another sticking point that really just punctuates the difference between these two films where, you know, the Hitchcock film ends on this really poignant and strong narrative note, you know, and there's no epilogue for the characters, there's no bullshit, there's no post-credits stupid dialogue shit, you know, <laughs> that that's funny sometimes in comedies, but like, you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, I know what you mean. The
0: movie just ends. It just fucking ends. Um, yeah. A lot of films these days do not know when the fuck to end. Um, and They also take forever to start, I think. They take forever to start, and they don't know when to just end. And this film, just they just had to throw one more dog shit romance scene in there. As if the chemistry between Lily James and Army the Hammer was... <laughs> did you Not just
1: call him Army?
0: Then? Army? Did I say Army the Hammer? I'm so used to saying Maxim <laughs> you call him Army the Hammer. <laughs> the Hammer, Army the Hammer. We're <laughs> just gonna call him the Hammer. The Hammer, yeah. He,
1: yeah, just you gotta da have right one now. more
0: scene between Lily James and the Hammer. You know, <laughs> like one more bullshit. You know, like I, masturbatory, like romance garbage at the end. That's just. Like, there's no chemistry between these characters. I mean, that's kind of the point in the original film is that their their relationship is really cold and distant because Max is this, like, cold weirdo that obviously has problems with women, whether it's Rebecca's fault for, like, emotionally abusing him, you know, or there's something more going on there is an interesting yeah. point for discussion. But, like, but none of that shit is established in the new film. You know, he's just... Yeah. He's just this, like, dead fish. He's just this handsome-looking dead fish, this hollow husk that walks around and gets angry when people say Rebecca.
2: Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. so the romance isn't satisfying, you know, in any sense. So why end on that? Like, at least end on the death of the most interesting character in the film, you know, Danvers. Like, they did her death scene yeah. justice, I felt like, even though if it was different. I mean, and I, I yeah. think that's, I think... sorry, that's another point I want to make, is that, like, there are differences in the film, the two versions, where I like stuff that they did in the new one. Like, mm-hmm. not all my criticisms are just that, oh, it's different from the Hitchcock, therefore it's bad. No, yeah. I the build-up to the ball scene was really good. You know, the upside down shot in the rain, you know, the, the Rebecca the
1: de- pulling the ship out of water thing was
0: cool. that scene was cool. I mean, obviously, they have technical advantages with like the driving scenes and stuff like that. They can yeah, use yeah. color and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And the death of Danvers wasn't necessarily better, but it wasn't necessarily worse either. It didn't, you know, upset me. So it's not just that they didn't do things the same as Hitchcock and they didn't make the same film. They made a worse film. And when you're making a film that Hitchcock has already made, man, you got to be up for the challenge.
1: Yeah, because unfortunately, even if it's not fair, people are going to draw comparisons like we are because Yep. It, I yeah. mean it's it's just going to happen.
0: Yeah, and You know, ultimately, if someone saw this new film on Netflix and they're like, oh, what do you think of it? My response would be like, nah, go watch the Hitchcock one.
1: Yeah, just go watch it. Just don't
0: bother. Just do not bother with this film. And that is my recommendation to everybody here. Unless you have seen or are planning on seeing the Hitchcock film and want to compare the two. Because I think that is an interesting reason to watch this new film. But simply for the experience of the film itself, in a way to experience the story of Rebecca, it doesn't do it justice and it does not hold a candle. The Hitchcock film.
1: No, definitely not.
0: Those are my it's, thoughts. It's
1: just good. It, yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's a good place to end. Yeah. Next
0: week, we will be doing The Dark Knight. Um,
1: no not doing the dark
0: night we we'll do <laughs> nolan though i mean we have to oh dark we have him. to do nolan at some point no there's this um podcast i watched. i honestly uh, we could do
1: a whole on episode on just the interstellar
0: oh my that's yeah if we're gonna do any nolan we have to do that we, we have to yeah. do that film oh my god i have to watch that film again though oh no <laughs> <laughs> There are good scenes in that. I just have to tell myself. Okay, no, there's, there's fantastic moments. scenes in that film. There are film. great scenes in that film. Yeah. That's like the, the, the extreme months, version of this new Rebecca film where it's like the highs are just really high and the lows are just rock bottom dog shit.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. <clears throat> no, because the good scenes in that film are like awesome.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: But man... character writing just is not he he doesn't have it in him it's just not
1: Nolan's forte he doesn't have it in him no which is why I would really love for him to have another writer that's not his brother work with him
0: Uh, has he worked with Roman Coppola Nolan? yeah
1: no I don't think so
0: he should work with Roman Coppola
1: Yeah, he seems like a cool guy.
0: I I just feel like that's the kind of person that would. You know. Because Roman's worked with a lot of people, right? Yeah. Yeah, somebody who's good at collaborating and is a good writer. And like every time I see a film that Roman Coppola's worked on, it's usually well written.
1: Yeah, he's not like, a you know, unlike unlike his sister or father, he's not like this huge name. He's always kind of like, a, he's a little bit more like in the background. And I guess people who like watch films frequently know who he is and you yeah. know, recognize, you know, know what films he's worked on. But he's he, a lot of the things he works on, at least everything that I've seen that he's worked on has always been really quality.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and it doesn't need to be, but he needs a Roman Coppola, you know, he needs yeah. someone like yeah. that, a collaborator that can yeah. actually make his writing better. Um, yeah.
1: We have to save this for the Nolan episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah. but no, the the reason I brought up The Dark Knight, though, there's this podcast on engineering disasters that I love, and one of the jokes they have is they always say the next episode is going to be on the Tacoma Narrows bridge disaster.
1: Oh. Which is a
0: bridge collapse in which only a dog died
1: yeah no i know about that there's there's like famous footage of it like swinging swinging yeah. around and stuff yeah. before it collapsed
0: yeah. and they always say that's gonna be their next episode
1: <laughs> okay so our next episode's always on the dark night it's always
0: on the dark night next episode dark night, <laughs> okay, dark night, episode, night. Dark Knight. <laughs> just yoink that's that joke yoink
1: yeah. oh also you need to you need to shout out um our music man
0: Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot in the intro. I should have written that down in my, uh, in my notes. Our music. Thank you to Vaudino for the wonderful music on this podcast. Please check him out. Yeah, he makes... Vaudino on he Spotify. Makes cool stuff. Good music. Good music, man. Thank you, Tristan. For the you, music. How do you spell
1: Vaudino? Can you spell it?
0: V-A-U. Dino.
1: Dino. <laughs> Was it? I don't know why his name is that, but that's his name. And he that's makes cool stuff. D-I-N-O. And he provides the music. Yeah. He graciously lends his music to us for this podcast.
0: For absolutely free because we are broke yes. ass bitches and we can't pay for some real music. <laughs> yeah. No, it's real music. It's good music. Yeah. Um, it's good music. Yeah. We we can't pay for licensed music or any shit like that. And, you know, I ain't messing with the DMCA, you know? no otherwise. Warner Brothers would Warner Brothers music group will kill your whole family if you put five seconds of their their music in your <laughs> YouTube video they'll just they'll just kill your whole family they don't give a shit yeah. like oh you used you, you, if you hum the melody and it gets picked up by their automation they're sending their Warner Brothers <laughs> fucking goon squad to just mow you down in your front lawn people are really <laughs> oh god That's the world we live in. All right. See you next time. Thanks for listening.